Well, good afternoon, everyone. It is nice to see you all on this beautiful sunny afternoon. Um, as, we're con- as we're continuing uh, our studies in the Gospel of Matthew, the passage that's before us this afternoon is what some... If, if you're a football fan, you'd call this a game of two halves. There, there, there are two utterly contrasting scenes that we've read here. If you've ever felt that life is full of ups and downs or highs and lows, this passage is exactly that. The first part is a wow, but the second part is more like an ow. Two contrasting scenes. Matthew, first of all, takes us high up a mountain and we see something of the awesome, dazzling, cosmic glory of Jesus. But then we come back down to earth with a tremendous crash as we see the devastation and chaos and failure on the ground. There's the high of everything seeming to come together and then the low of everything disintegrating and falling apart. So often in life Isn't it true that we long for the wow and yet our experience feels more like an owl? (laughs) And in all of this apparent roller coaster, Jesus is on the move. He and his friends have been, as we've seen, far north and now they're beginning the journey south to Jerusalem. And as they travel, Jesus takes three of his friends, his disciples up a mountain where three important things uh, seem to happen. And all of them point to what we might call the unique splendor or the unique glory of Jesus. Three things here in simple terms that happen on the mountain. First of all, the physical appearance of Jesus changes. And this is not a brightness that comes from somewhere else and bounces off him like a reflection. And it's not something that's briefly added to him for a few moments. This is more that his earthly appearance was a kind of cover, hiding the true glory that was within And in this brief moment on the mountain, it's as if the curtains are drawn back and the true glory of Jesus shines. His inherent glory shines from within him. And these men get a glimpse for for these few moments of who Jesus really is. Jesus is not merely a great human being. There's been loads of great human beings in history. Here is the glory of God clothed in human flesh. Then secondly, Moses and Elijah appear. Well, <laughs> we haven't got time to get into all, of, all the richness and what, what that means. But, but suffice it to say that these men are great heroes from the past, centuries before. And if you like... What these men are representing is the fact that they are important actors in a great God-directed drama that spans the years of history. 
But as significant as these men are, we find out here that they're merely part of the supporting cast. Their lives and their ministries in the past all pointed forward to this moment when the main, unique actor strides onto the stage, Jesus Christ. I think Peter's interruption in verse 4 emphasises the category mistake that we can often make when we think about Jesus. And there is something slightly comical about this because he seems to place Jesus and Moses and Elijah on the same level. You'll see it there in verse 4. Peter, Peter almost says, Lord, this is brilliant. Thanks for inviting us. <laughs> Amazing to be here. It's great to be here. It's great to see this glory. I want to make myself useful, though. Maybe I could build three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. But even as he speaks, there's, there's, there's this sense of this somehow amazing bright cloud descending and enveloping them all. It's almost if a voice off the stage is like, Peter, stop talking. Peter, be quiet. This is not the time to do DIY. This is not the time for you to be rushing around business. It's not even the time for you to be talking. The cloud descends while he's... St- I-, I wonder how that petered off as the cloud descends. And Peter realises that maybe I should just be quiet. And thirdly, from this glorious cloud, these men hear the voice of God, the Father. In the pre- if you've been with us as we've been going through Matthew in the previous chapter, we heard Peter say to confess. Jesus said to them, who do, who do you think I am? And Jesus said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. We heard Peter say that. Now Peter gets to hear God, the great father of our Lord Jesus Christ, say the same thing. And don't miss the fact here that Jesus is not just glorious and unique, but that he is cherished and treasured and delighted in by his Father. Verse 5. This is my son, whom I love, with him I am well pleased. There is so much glorious wow in this scene. But I want to zoom in this afternoon just for a few moments with you on just three simple words. They're the last words that God speaks. For these men on the mountain, it seems that the whole point of this glimpse of the unique splendor of Jesus is what God tells them to do. Three words. Listen to 
him. Listen to him because he is uniquely glorious, yes. But more than all of that, listen to him because he's mine and he's for you. This is quite literally, I think, a match made in heaven. It seems to me as if God is handing over his glorious son to them. But there is a sense as well that God is giving them over to Jesus. What a moment. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to him. There is so much noise in our lives. There's often so much noise in our own emotions. It is hard sometimes, isn't it, to know who to listen to and what to listen to. But here is God gloriously simplifying that equation. Listen to him. If we would know the heart and mind of God, we must listen to Jesus. And it seems obvious, doesn't it, that God doesn't just mean listen here as if Jesus is some kind of podcast, you know, optional. I think it's clear that God means listen to him in a way that will transform your life and experience. This is the moment where God takes a great big fat marker pen and underlines and highlights the identity and supremacy and beauty of Jesus. This is the moment when God makes the way of human salvation that we all yearn for crystal clear. Maybe over the next couple of weeks we'll see as well, this is the moment where God himself establishes the ethic of the church that is about to be born. If you want a definition of what church is, it is a bunch of people who are listening to him. This is where the whole ethic of the church is grounded. This is our task, to listen to Jesus and to listen believingly, if that's even a word, and to listen obediently, which I think is a word. So this afternoon, what I want us to do is just simply to walk through the rest of these two contrasting scenes and listen to Jesus. There are basically four conversations that go on here in the verses that Andrew uh, read to us. And we, we hear Jesus speak. Twice, Jesus responds to the circumstances around him. And then another two times, he's responding to specific questions that the disciples ask him. So four exchanges. And I hope that we can see and hear and learn four things from Jesus here as we listen to him. First of all, I want us to listen to the depths 
that Jesus tenderly stoops down to. I'm not sure if my headings this afternoon are any good, but you'll, you'll get the thrust of what I'm trying to say. I, I, what I'm trying to establish here is something of his gentle tenderness. I'm not trying to establish it, you know what I mean? I'm trying to highlight it. Um, when the disciples experienced a bright cloud surrounding them and they hear the voice of God speaking to them, they are utterly terrified and they fall on their faces. I think it's true to say that in this world we have a big problem with power. So often we see power being used to exploit and to bully and to dominate and to crush those who are powerless. But here is something truly beautiful. Here, here is great power that instead instinctively chooses to protect and comfort rather than crush. You, you won't be surprised to notice that there are lots of times in the Gospels where people are described as coming to Jesus. But here is one of those occasions where Jesus is described as coming to them. Verse 7, Jesus came and touched them. The terror is because when we sense that power is coming towards us, we're vulnerable. We're, we're not sure what that, whether that power will hurt us. And we feel afraid. But when we realize that the power that is coming towards us is not coming towards us to hurt us, but is for us and is actually coming to help us Maybe that takes some getting used to. I love the fact that Jesus touches them and says, get up. Jesus is not interested in putting his mighty boot on their fragile throats to keep them under his domination. He loves to help them to their feet. Isn't that beautiful? And Jesus adds, do not be afraid which in the gospel seems to be one of Jesus' favorite phrases. Here then is a power that cares. Here is a God who rather than squashing us from a great heart, stoops down to our level to touch us and soothe our fears and help us to our feet. Matthew tells us here that when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. Right after God the Father says, listen to him, the very first thing they hear is his gentle tenderness. And the very first thing they experience is the softness of his touch. Secondly, I want, to, I want us to listen to the lengths that Jesus courageously 
goes to. As they're coming down the mountain, the next thing we hear Jesus saying leads to a question. First, Jesus tells them to keep this experience to themselves for now. Later, they will proclaim what they've seen. But in the previous chapter, we've already seen that Peter didn't understand uh, all of this. So there's little chance that the world is ready for this yet. And part of the reason for that is that there is glory here, but there's, there's suffering to be endured before the glory is revealed. And the, the world isn't ready yet until after the cross and resurrection to hear this. Now, the question that they ask Jesus as they're coming down the mountain is all about timing. And the best way I can think of to explain this is it's, it's a little bit like them being on the train platform, waiting for the Messiah train to arrive so they can jump on and travel. And it's finally dawned on the disciples now that the Messiah train has actually arrived and they've got their tickets and they're getting on board. They're not quite sure where they're going yet, but the Messiah train has arrived. The reason they're confused and the question that they ask is because in the Old Testament, God had made a promise that before the great day of the Lord would arrive, he would send Elijah, the great prophet, again to restore the nation. And the Jewish teachers over the years, over the centuries, had interpreted this like a train time. You're on the platform and the timetable says the Elijah train will come before the Messiah train comes. And the confusion here is that they know now that the Messiah train's come. Why has the Elijah train not arrived yet? That's what they're asking. The teachers of the law say that the Messiah won't come until Elijah's been. We know what we've seen, but we're confused about the timetable. Jesus says that the teachers were right and wrong. Elijah does come, but they missed the train. <laughs> I don't know whether they were buying a paper or going for a coffee in the station shop, but while they were waiting for the Messiah train, the Elijah train has been and gone. They've kind of missed it. So this is, Jesus is saying, they're right, but this is not a timetable mess up. This is not British Rail, or whatever they're called now. The Messiah train can now be here because the Elijah train has been gone. Now, actually, it is much worse, as I think you'll know. Jesus explains that the Elijah figure was not a literal Elijah returning. It was John the Baptist, great prophet, and he wasn't just missed, he was murdered. <laughs> they didn't just not recognize him, they killed him. And then Jesus says to them something stunning. He, he essentially says to them, what's happened to the Elijah train is also going to happen to the Messiah train. <laughs> what, what they did to him, they're going to do to me. We talked about ups and downs, and in this part of Matthew, it, it is like a roller coaster. In chapter 16, Peter is like, Jesus, you're the son of God. Jesus is like, yes, but I'm going to die. 
In this chapter, it's like, but look at your glory, Lord. And Jesus is like, I know, but they're going to do to me what they did to him. It's, it's, it's kind of like a, the disciples are disorientated. In this world, we don't expect normally to see the glorious and the strong and the powerful suffering. But in this second conversation down the mountain, as we listen to Jesus, Matthew highlights again that Jesus knows exactly where he's going. As they travel south, Jesus is preparing his friends for what lies ahead when they get to Jerusalem. Jesus actually does it again in verse 22. When they came together in Galilee, even further south, it's almost like they're packing their bags ready to go to Jerusalem. And as he gathers them all together, he says to them again, the son of man is going to be betrayed into the hands of man. The one who rules is going to be crushed by his subjects. Why do I describe this as the lengths that Jesus courageously goes to it is because his suffering is not an accident this is not an unfortunate end to a promising career this glorious son has come deliberately and cheerfully if we can say that and willingly in order to lay down his innocent life he is the great sacrifice that will atone for human sin and take away human guilt and reconcile us to God. So what we're actually listening to here is the, is the courage of Jesus who is walking towards the cross with his eyes wide open. And what we're sensing is that there is no obstacle too great. There is no cost too high. There is no task too hard for him when it comes to saving his people. There is no length that he would not go to to save his people, to save you. Do, do you know that? There is no length he would not go to to save you and bring you to God here is a power that is gentle and a glory that willingly suffers thirdly well we, we come down the mountain now with Jesus and these three disciples and this is the very definition of coming down to earth with a bump and I want us to listen to the resistance that Jesus triumphantly overcomes Notice first in verse 14 that there is a crowd here watching and waiting. Every man and his dog has an opinion, don't they? <laughs> and as they come, there's a crowd here watching, waiting. Next, a father comes and kneels before Jesus. Desperate. Lord, have mercy on my son. He has seizures 
and is suffering greatly. So, while three of the disciples have been enjoying glory on the mountain, the other nine have fallen flat on their faces in the valley. This is horrible for everyone involved. Because the man says in verse 16, I brought him to your disciples, but they couldn't heal him. This is important because back in chapter 10, Jesus sent his disciples out to preach and heal as he himself had been doing. And they had done so. Jesus sent them out with his authority. And it's almost as if one day the sun is shining, everything seems easy, and the next day it's completely rubbish. One day they are working to their full potential, living the dream, and the next they're failing and ashamed with a whole crowd of people watching their humiliation. We, we don't live in these times. We don't live in this age. This, we can't draw a straight line from now to this. But in, you know what that feels like, right? That sense of ups and downs. But let's listen to Jesus. That's our task here. As Jesus witnesses this carnage unfolding, his first response is the deepest of groans. Verse 17. Oh, unbelieving and perverse generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Who's Jesus directing these frustrating sighs to? Is it the dad? Is it the crowd? Is it the disciples? Seems clear in Matthew that society in general didn't respond to Jesus with the kind of faith he was looking for and expected. And, and that certainly grieved Jesus. But I don't know, there's a little hint here that it's almost as if his own disciples failing here makes that worse. You kind of expect it from the crowd, but not from your own friends. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus told his disciples that he'd given to them the keys of the kingdom. And if they couldn't draw on God's power by faith, what hope was there? It's, it's like as Jesus comes down the mountain, it's almost like, wow. Listen to what Jesus says, though. Unbelieving and perverse, it is one thing to have unbelief, maybe due to a lack of evidence. Could excuse that, but... According to Jesus here, there's something perverse about unbelief when the evidence is staring you right in the face. What Jesus sees here very clearly is the moral failure of unbelief, the willfulness of it, the lack of any excuse for it. 
This is what Jesus, in all of his glory, is stepping down into. And humans are literally provoking him to his face. You can almost hear the crushing, disappointing weight of his sadness at the suffering and the unbelief around him and now even the failure of his friends. I struggled a bit with this heading too. <laughs> what, I, what I'm trying to convey here is how disappointing this is for Jesus. It is hard for him to endure such grinding disappointment. And yet, and yet, and yet, his frustration does not descend into bitterness. There's not even a hint of him here giving up in despair or lashing out in anger. What Jesus actually says is, bring me the boy. Bring me the boy. Oh, I do love this. When no one else can help. When all else fails. When all hope is lost. When even his friends fail. Everything is falling apart. Jesus says, bring the boy to me. What this conveys is the triumphant patience of Jesus in this deep struggle. He groans, but he wins. He sighs, but he delivers. Matthew Henry was a minister a long time ago. He lived, apparently, I looked this up because I wasn't sure if you'd know who he was. He lived from 1662 to 1714, so his English was a little bit different to ours. But he wrote a very famous commentary, which people still use today, commentary on the Bible. And I love how Matthew Henry describes this scene. I quote, Though the people were perverse, and Christ was provoked, yet care was taken of the child. Though Christ may be angry, he is never unkind. Nor doth he, in the greatest of his displeasure, shut up the bowels of his compassion from the miserable. Oh, I do love that. Bring him to me. When all other helps and comforts fail, we are welcome to Christ and may be confident in him and in his power and goodness. I said at the start that Jesus is on the move geographically, moving south towards Jerusalem, but I want you to get this afternoon that Jesus is on the move spiritually, stooping down to great depths in his tenderness, going to great lengths 
to save his people with his courageous love and reaching out over great difficulties with such patience. What an energetic and compassionate saviour Jesus is. No wonder the father is delighted with him. No wonder the father says, hey, listen to him. Oh, we've got one more. Number four. Listen to his stunning invitation. The last thing here for us to hear is the incredible response that Jesus gives to another question, this time in private. These poor disciples, ashamed, they come to Jesus in private and they ask him, what happened? Maybe there's some Manchester City players doing this with Pep Guardiola today, I don't know. The day, you know, they, they come. What, 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 why couldn't we do it? Why couldn't we drive it out? Jesus answers them. Because your faith was little. The idea here really is of a faith that is shoddy. It's the best word I could think of. The significant thing here is that this situation is not about their personal needs. What I mean by that is, in the Gospels, Jesus gently rebukes his disciples several times. Oh, ye of little faith, you'll recognize that phrase. But usually it's their worry and fear and anxiety that he's confronting. What they're worried about is that they're going to be enough or have enough or be safe and secure Year of little faith kind of applies to them personally. But in this particular case, this is nothing to do with their personal needs. This is about ministry to other people. Why did we fail to relay your power to those in need? This is not about their personal needs. This is about faith in ministry. We could speculate as to why. Were they overconfident or complacent? Did they view their earlier ability as some kind of magic that just could happen on tap? Perhaps they were put off by the crowds or by Jesus' absence. Maybe this was a particularly tricky case. Were they somehow just taking it all for granted and somehow relying on themselves Rather than God's part, whatever it was, Jesus defines their failure as a crisis of shoddy faith. But even then, whenever Jesus challenges his friends, he never does it to crush them. There's a challenge there, but he always gives them the answer. And in this case, Jesus gives them a stunning invitation. Jesus makes a contrast here. Where are we? Jesus makes a contrast here in verse 20. And he prefaces it with an important phrase. I tell you the truth. This is, this is like Jesus saying, listen up. Don't forget this. And then Jesus makes a contrast by calling to mind the smallest thing he can think of and the biggest thing he can think of. In one hand, he puts a mustard seed. And I, this week, I was so... I, I, I bought some mustard seeds on Amazon for 85p. 
And they are tight. I didn't know what a mustard seed looked like. And I've got about 5,000 in my hand now. There you go. Let's just grab one. There you go. Can you see that? Of course you can't. <laughs> Absolutely tiny. I also wanted to bring in on a trolley Mount Snowden. But I couldn't fit it through the door. <laughs> um, can, you, can you get the power of what Jesus is saying to them? In one hand, he's got a mustard seed that you can hardly see. And in the other, he has like this massive mountain. And Jesus says, if you have faith like this, you can move this. Now, I don't think Jesus here is saying that faith is some kind of magic secret weapon that can demand whatever it wants, whenever it wants. Faith, faith is not a power in and of itself. Jesus actually says it, it's a mustard seed. Faith is not positive thinking or some kind of mystical mind over matter. The wonderfully encouraging point that Jesus is making here is that it's not actually the adequacy or the size of our faith that counts. What matters is who that faith is in. And friends, it, it's in everything we've just been talking about. <laughs> Neither is Jesus telling his friends to go out moving literal mountains around and confusing everyone. Mountains are, of course, a symbol of permanence. Rock-like stability. Mountains don't move. They never change. I think what Jesus is implying here is that those situations that seem like they could never change, those obstacles that seem insurmountable, those problems that seem unsolvable, those habits that seem unbreakable. Our God is the God who delights to do the impossible. Jesus is calling his friends to believe that God in his great love and power can achieve things that no one else could. This is an astonishing word to this group that have just failed in ministry, isn't it? Listen to Jesus here. Nothing will be impossible for you. What are the mountains that we face in ministry terms? How on earth will our community be reached with the good news of Jesus. How on earth can we too ever relay to other needy people the power of God? How, how on earth can we do that? We can't. But we have a God who is able to do what otherwise would be impossible. And he loves for his people to trust him 
to do what only he can do. It's not the size of our tiny faith, but the greatness of the power of our God. So, we've seen that God commands us to listen to him. What can you hear as you listen to Jesus in this passage? His gentle tenderness, his courageous love that took him to the cross, his patient victory, and now here his stunning invitation to us as a church family, REC, weak as we are, to trust him, to trust his son and the life-changing power of his gospel, to call others to come and listen to him, to love and serve one another in his strength, and to know that the smallest faith can make the biggest difference because of the greatness of our God. Amen. Let's uh, bow for a moment, shall we? And we'll, we'll just pray. Father, we thank you for your word, the compelling nature of it. And Father, at the beginning of this service, we sang, oh, sing hallelujah, Christ our hope in life and death. Father, would you help us to listen to him believingly and obediently. And Father, would you help us to have that faith, tiny mustard seed faith? Would you give us the joy of seeing you move mountains in accord with that faith that you give? We pray in Christ's name. Amen.